This is Africa Digest. A very good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on frequency 15235 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa and on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Asanda Mataunyane, Usani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Your top stories, African leaders urged to listen to their people. Zika virus continues to cause havoc for the world authorities. In economics, Kumba Iron Ore announces loss of close to 4,000 jobs in a massive restructuring. In sports, FIFA president candidates expected to meet senior South African Football Association officials on Tuesday. Here's Asanda Matawanyan. Good evening. The Department of Health in South Africa's Western Cape province has dispatched a team to Mossel Bay following an outbreak of viral meningitis in the area. This comes after more than 30 cases of the viral infection were confirmed in the province since December last year. However, the department says this is a mild form of the virus. Provincial Health spokesperson Mark van der Heerwe. There's no need for concern because this is, is not the, the dangerous meningitis. This is treatable. It is easily detected. So um, if patients or people feel that they have one of the symptoms, which could either be a fever, headache, a stiff neck, a tiredness, a rash on the body, or soft throat, they should rather go to the, the clinic, see a doctor, and this will also allow us to early detect the virus and then also treat it appropriately. What people could also do to prevent it is they should teach each other and and ensure that they show the children how to properly wash their hands and they should emphasize the regular hand washing when children are at school or in contact with any other children. Meanwhile, in another health scare, the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa says it's highly unlikely the Zika virus will reach the country's shores. There's an outbreak of the virus in some South and Central American countries where thousands of people have been infected. Pregnant women are being advised to be particularly careful not to get bitten by a specific mosquito that transmits the virus. The Institute's Lucille Bloomberg says mosquitoes in South Africa are slightly different to those spreading the Zika virus in the Americas. So it's not quite the same one. It is, a, I guess, a cousin. We do have Aedes mosquitoes in South Africa. You probably have some in your garden, but they're not the same. And they've not been shown to be competent in transmitting the virus. Not Zika, not dengue, not yellow fever, which are related viruses. They don't like to feed on people. They um, feed outside, and they have very different characteristics. Two men convicted for the murder of Mozambican Emmanuel Sitole in Alexandra, South Africa, have been sentenced to 27 years collectively. Sitole was killed during widespread xenophobic attacks in South Africa last year. Mtinda Bengu has been sentenced to 17 years, while his accomplice Fundom Zimela has received 10 years. The 10 years in prison, that is. The third accused was released on supervision. Magistrate Lucas van der Schaaf has handed down the sentence at the Johannesburg Magistrates Court. In the case of a first offender, there is a possibility of as much as 20 years imprisonment being imposed. Accused number one was still quite young when he committed the offence. 
he was merely 19 years old. In the probation officer's report, it is mentioned that he has a problem with his temper. It is also alleged that at the time of committing the offence, he was under the influence of liquor. Having a short fuse is not an illness. If a person knows that he has an anger problem, he should address this problem and not use it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Nearly one in two women aged between 20 and 24 in Mozambique are married or in a union before they are 18 years old. United Nations Children's Fund says the country has the 10th highest rate of child marriage in the world. The legal age of marriage in Mozambique is 18, but where parents or guardians have given consent, the age is 16. Low levels of education and a lack of reproductive health information leaves young girls at an increased risk of contracting sexually transmitted diseases. Mozambique, with one of the fastest-growing economies on the continent, has, however, realized the scale of the problem and is pushing to reverse the trend. Finally, a suicide bomber has blown himself up in the Afghan capital, Kabul, after joining a queue of people waiting to enter an office of the civil order police, killing one person and wounding 11. According to police, the blast was in the Demazang area in the west of the city. In addition to the person killed, 11 have been taken to hospital. The city was hit by a series of suicide attacks last month, including one that killed seven journalists as the Taliban stepped up their campaign against the Western government. That's your news this hour here on Channel Africa. I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. Thank you very much, Asanda. Your time is 19.05 Central African time right here on Africa. Digest the on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's actually 19.06 now, Central African time. Chairperson of the African Union and Chad President Idris Deby says AU member states need to pursue dialogue in times of crises and listen to their people to avert the problems facing the continent. Deby was speaking at the end of the 26th sitting of the Union Assembly in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa yesterday. The two-day meeting mainly discussed the political crises in Burundi, South Sudan, Burkina Faso, with terror attacks in Somalia, Nigeria and Kenya, among others. Debo Mugobo was there and filed this report for us. The African continent has acquired a reputation as a hotbed of political violence and conflict, with a fraction of the world's civil wars now breaking out on the continent. Political unrest has engulfed Burundi with fears that this could spiral into a civil war. In South Sudan, a unity government is still to be formed as warring parties are at each other's throat, with the leader of the opposition, Rick Machar, now in exile here in Ethiopia. Again, the continent has become a breeding ground for terrorist organizations, Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab in Nigeria, Somalia and Kenya, and there are fears that this could spread to neighboring countries and the entire East Africa region. Chairperson of the African Union and Chad President Idris Deby says leaders have to listen to concerns of their people in order to avoid all these problems. I would like to appeal that we take stock of all these issues that seriously undermine our progress and development. Much as we need to be firm against terrorism and internal crisis in the states, the key word should be dialogue. We can no longer tolerate that thousands of Africans die because of political struggles. And we are going to follow with keen interest and great vigilance the development of the situation in these countries, particularly in Burundi and South Sudan. 
President Debi says as the new chair of the continental body, he will ensure that the AU is effective and responsive to the concerns of the African masses. He has vowed to champion the rights of women and girls during his tenure. We shall make the African Union effective and closer to the concerns of the peoples of Africa. Human rights, and particularly the rights of women, should be even at the very core and heart of our national agendas and programs. We have the tools and the mechanisms to implement them and to have them observed at the national as well as the continental level. I would like to call upon our states to ensure that this is done. Earlier in his last media briefing at the African Union as the head of the United Nations, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said it would be difficult to achieve Africa's call for the reform of the UN Security Council, saying countries in the continent are not speaking with one voice, insisting that others are pursuing their own interests. The member states should show some purpose of unity uh, rather than promoting their own individual element based on their individual interests. When the member states are engaging based on their national or regional interests, then I don't think this Security Council reform will be realized. So it's important that the African Union, uh, they should speak in one voice. But President Zuma says it's unfair for the UN chief diplomat to blame Africa for lack of reform in the Security Council. Currently, the continent has only two rotational seats in the 15-member council. And President Zuma says it's not Africa's choice to be out of the council. Africa is speaking in one voice. Uh, What President Mugabe referred to as the Ezulwini consensus, that is the position of Africa. Very clear. I think the blame cannot be put on the African countries. It is actually at the door of the permanent members of the Security Council. We have raised the issue very repeatedly, it's very clear. I don't think they are ready to move. So the point that Mkabe raised was very accurate in so far as our position is concerned. African leaders will again gather the 27th extraordinary summit of the Assembly in the Rwandan capital Kigali in June, where they're expected to discuss the migration of young people to Europe and elsewhere searching for better opportunities. I am Tebomokobadi Sababa in Ethiopia. Rwanda leads the world when it comes to the number of women serving in parliament. More than half of elected officials there are women. Gender equality is also helping to reduce poverty in remote areas of the East African country, according to the United Nations International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD. Joanne Leverton reports on a training program that is changing lives on family farms in rural Rwanda. There is a resolution on economic sanctions on Sudan, which has been implemented unilaterally by the U.S. government for the last 23 years. And even the AU and member countries are suffering because even banking transactions are not allowed to and from Sudan. Embassies must take their money cash and even our contribution to the AU was sent in two big bags taken by the deputy chairperson a few weeks ago on two business class seats with security arrangements. So this is one of the issues of high concern to us. For the first time we wanted our African brothers and sisters to know of that because we've been suffering, others are suffering, but we never took it to our African brothers. And we found excellent support at the level of the PRs 
as well as the level of the council, we are quite sure that the summit will endorse that resolution. The other resolution is on ICC. From the Joburg summit, the AU formed an open ministerial committee in which uh, 20 countries are now members. That open ministerial committee during the last few months, since the last summit, held various meetings. One of them is in The Hague with the prosecutor of the ICC, Fatou Bin Soda, and now they presented the report to the council and the council unanimously adopted a resolution on the ICC and Africa. On the issue of the ICC, some people who are in favour of the ICC are saying there are no mechanisms in the continent to address the issues of human rights. It is for that reason they feel the ICC is the better place to go to because the African court is not functioning and the countries haven't signed the protocol. If you cannot discipline your son, you then send him abroad to be disciplined. Let them work hand in hand, all of us together, to form our own institutions. For the ICC, which was formed by the Europeans, when it was formed, one European senior politician said that the ICC is not established for us. Till now, of 9,000 cases presented to the ICC, 139 countries were involved. Only 37 cases has been investigated. All of them are Africans. That's not by chance. But how do we ensure that African countries, and leaders in particular, do support the African court? Because I spoke to one of the human rights commissioners who said, you see, the problem is that we still have to ensure that the African court is functioning. Are you also going to push for the African court to be given the resource and the necessary support to ensure that it does its work? and then we can then avoid our own people being sent abroad. We are against impunity, but we need to have our own institutions. This is why Sudan proposed in the Open Ministerial Committee that one paragraph should be on the issue of adoption of the African Court for Justice and Human Rights. Finally, on issues of peace and security, the relations between North and South, that is Sudan and South Sudan, but also the internal conflict in Sudan. How do you ensure that you are indeed in that area or in this region stable and there's prosperity for the people? I will tell you, since I'm here in this AU summit, I've been hearing about conflicts in all parts of Africa. I never heard an African minister or diplomat talking about conflicts in Sudan, simply because right now, there is no fighting in Darfur, South Kurdufan, on Blue Nile. It's only in the media, it's only in the minds of those who are targeting Sudan. Darfur is now peaceful. I will invite you as a television station to go and see for yourself. You've been seeing killing, shelling everywhere on TV. You have never seen that on Darfur. Did President Mbegi's intervention work? Yes, of course. And uh, I will tell you, from 2009, since the establishment of the AU High Implementation Panel, led by President Mbeke, President Abdeslam Bokr, at that time President Bayoya, they have done a great job in Sudan, and they have followed closely the issues 
inside the United Sudan and even between Sudan and South Sudan. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. All right, the story you heard before the break was an interview that was done by SABC's political editor, Sofim Gwen, who is in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and she was talking to the foreign minister of Sudan, Ibrahim Gandor, and they were talking about the government of South Sudan that's been lobbying African heads of state for support in its fight for America to drop economic sanctions against Sudan. America imposed sanctions more than two decades ago following allegations of war crimes and genocide against President Omar al-Bashir. He is wanted by the International Criminal Court to answer to the charges relating to Sudan's Darfur region. The country wanted heads of state at the just-concluded summit in Addis Ababa to pass a resolution against the sanctions. Our colleague, Sofim Gwena, was there, and she's the one that conducted the interview that you heard just before we went to break. Now, the story that we introduce is about Rwanda, which leads the world when it comes to the number of women serving in parliament. More than half of the elected officials there are women. Gender equality is also helping to reduce poverty in remote areas of the East African country, according to the United Nations International Fund for the Agricultural Development, IFAD. Joanne Liverton reports on a training program that is changing lives on family farms in rural Rwanda. Like most farmers here in the Karehe district of eastern Rwanda, Epiphany Mukamarenzi is up with the sun. She and her husband, Boskona Datimana, work closely together during the daily morning milking session. This would have been unthinkable just a few years ago, when Epiphany was confined to household chores, while Bosco exclusively handled anything to do with their income. Epiphany says that things started to change when they took part in a livestock training program five years ago. My husband and I used to be very, very poor. We fought all the time. Everything changed when we received this cow and the training. In the past, my husband would spend our money without consulting me. Our family is so different now. We live in harmony and we're both involved in financial decisions. The training Epiphany and her husband received is part of a government project called QUAMP, which aims to increase farmers' incomes and food security. Supported by IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, and Haifa International, qualifying families receive livestock and are trained to care for them. But it doesn't stop there. Everyone who receives livestock is also trained on gender equality. 
Epiphany's husband, Bosco Natatimana. Happiness has been brought back to this house. Gender training was crucial because I used to think that the money from the milk and the bananas was for me. The money from the beans and such was for the women. We've been taught that the money we make is for the good of the entire family. So far, about 6,000 families have gone through this training. And the project's gender specialist, Raymond Kamwe, says it is essential for them to learn about the link between gender equality in the household and poverty. Gender is a key part of our training program because we know the significant role that women play in lifting households out of poverty. Women are crucial for the agricultural sector, so we emphasize gender equality in farming so that they can contribute and share their vision for their family's future. It's all part of the Rwandan government's nationwide push for gender equality. The East African country is the first in the world where women hold a parliamentary majority, and new laws have given women rights in land, inheritance, employment opportunities and education. Kailisa Caritas is the gender coordinator at the Ministry of Agriculture. We can't do, talk about gender equality without talking the independence, the financial independence of women. So we want our women to be economic, economically empowered so that they can face their future. To help women become more economically empowered, the Quamp project is also trying out something new. It's called the Gender Action Learning System, or GELS. Raymond has been working with couples like Lidavine Musabiyama and Gassana Muzehe to map out a common vision using counseling, drawing and visuals. Lidavine says that together they have developed a shared strategy and measurable goals for their family's development. The training taught us how to work together in all aspects of our lives. Our love has come back and we share everything. We've built a toilet, renovated the house, bought livestock. Anything is possible now. And with Rwanda's focus on gender equality, anything is possible for many women. A recent study estimates that global GDP could increase by as much as 28 trillion U.S. dollars by 2025 if more women like Lidavine and Epiphany participated in economic growth. And it looks like Rwanda is on the way to achieving that. Joanne Neverton, United Nations. The United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights has called on Congolese authorities to work in order to improve human rights in that country. The call comes after the United Nations Office documented an increase of 64% in the total number of human rights abuses and noted that 49% of the 2015 abuses were committed by state officers in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamwende reports from Kinshasa. Authorities here in the Democratic Republic of Congo need to work hard in order to improve the human rights situation in this country. That's indeed what the United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights said after it documented an increase in 2015 comparatively to 2014. 64% of increase noted, 49% of the total number of human rights abuses have been committed by the state services, while the other 51% were committed by tens of armed groups operating in the eastern DRC. 
The office has reported about the situation, saying it's very concerned. Jose Maria Aranaz is the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights here. Our report has documented an increase of 64% in the total number of human rights abuses recorded through the territory of the RDC, bringing the total number of human rights abuses on over 8,847, of which 49% has been committed by state actors. We have also documented quite a large increase in the number of human rights abuses related to political rights and freedoms, which are contrary to the spirit of dialogue and to the conditions for credible elections in the future. The UN Joint Office believes that 2015 has been a bad year for human rights protection here in the Democratic Republic of Congo since there has been a lot of human rights abuses here and there. Coming to the 51% of human rights abuses committed by armed groups, the majority has been committed by the Rwandan rebels of democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda, well known as FDLR. But the Congolese government is doing its best to eradicate human rights violations here and indeed, the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights, Jose Maria Aranas, has mentioned it. We have also seen some positive developments such as the establishment of the Human Rights Commission, the ratification of the rights of people with disabilities, some of the efforts with regards to the eradication of sexual violence by state actors, and we have also noted that among the armed groups that have committed the 51% of those human rights abuses, FDLR has committed the majority of them, followed by ADF, FRPI and LRA. All in all, it has been a bad year for the protection of human rights and this increase in violations, it's a bad. It's bad indeed and this 2015 has been said to be an electoral year. Maybe the situation might improve as this is the wish of most of Congolese on the ground. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. And the program you're listening to is Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa with Ms. Pamela Lezondi with you until 2000 hours Central African time this evening. As the World Health Organization is still expected to decide whether the Zika virus should be treated as a global emergency, South Africans have little to fear from the disease. This is according to the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, NICD. However, pregnant women in the country have been urged to avoid going to countries where the Zika virus is endemic. The virus has been linked to the development of microcephaly, which is a medical condition characterized by smaller and underdeveloped skulls and brains in infants. More from Professor Lucille Blomberg, Deputy Director at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases. So I think it is important. I mean, it's an explosive outbreak. While the disease, the illness is very mild in the vast majority of people, I think it's the concern about the effect on the fetus causing microcephaly, small heads and small brains that has really prompted this meeting. Professor, why shouldn't South Africa worry about the Zika virus finding its way into the country when the same mosquito that spreads the virus is also present here? 
So it's not quite the same one. It is, a, I guess, a cousin. We do have Aedes mosquitoes in South Africa. You probably have some in your garden, but they're not the same. And they've not been shown to be competent in transmitting the virus. Not Zika, not dengue, not yellow fever, which are related viruses. They don't like to feed on people. They um, feed outside, and they have very different characteristics. What will it take for this virus to spread to South Africa? Oh, we would have to get a competent vector, so a mosquito that's a big enough population, which we don't have, and for the virus to be introduced. That's quite difficult. You can't just have one person with a virus coming to a country and a, a local mosquito. Virus is present for a very short time when people are infected, and then they would have to come into contact with that mosquito, and the mosquito would have to feed and be able to transmit to somebody else. And I think all of that coming together is really unlikely. I think Brazil is very different, and other countries where it's been introduced would be similar to Brazil. They have lots and lots of these specific Aedes mosquitoes, breeding very happily outside people's homes in small containers of water. They have the right climate, very tropical in areas. They have the right kind of a lot of poverty in many of the cities where these mosquitoes are really exploding and they have a lot of virus circulating. Mm. So it's really the perfect setup for an explosive ongoing outbreak. Which brings me to this next issue. Give us a brief background of this virus and its origins. So it seems to be in 90, the late 1940s was identified in the Zika forest in Uganda and then identified in people, in humans. Some years later, almost 20 years later, in Nigeria, in other parts of Africa, but not lower than Uganda. And then in, um, there were small outbreaks and a number of cases in the Pacific, but much more recently there have been these explosive outbreaks. So it, it's not a new virus, mm-hmm. and it's been circulating at really quite a low level until now. Do you know of any clinical trials taking place for a Zika vaccine, and how long will it take for the vaccine to be made available? I think there are a number of clinical studies at the moment to confirm the association between the viral infection, the Zika virus infection in pregnancy and the development of microcephaly. We need to confirm that cause and effect for the mouth and a strong association. And then um, I think there are a number of groups looking at the development of a vaccine, but that's not an easy one. And that's not something that's going to happen uh, in the next few months, but I think, you know, obviously the science needs, the research needs to follow quite quickly. The World Health Organization says the Zika virus has gone from a mild threat to one of alarming proportions. What do you think needs to happen if the outbreak is to be contained when there's no cure or vaccine for the virus? I think it's about uh, protecting people against mosquito bites, and that's particularly important for pregnant women living in the area. I think some countries, and this is always a difficult one, have asked people to defer their pregnancies. I mean, that's not always possible. But it's to protect people against mosquito bites and to decrease breeding sites around dwellings, around people's homes. What other issues do you wish to highlight, Professor, or clarify about this virus? I think it's important at the moment, until we have a clearer idea of what the association with Zika is for people traveling to areas where Zika is a problem, to delay travel if they are pregnant. I think that would be a a cautious way to go. Professor Lucille Bloomberg is the Deputy Director of the National Institute of Communicable Diseases in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidecha. This is Channel Africa.
South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1931 Central African Time tweet us on Channel Africa 1. South Africa's Western Cape Health Department says the meningitis outbreak which has gripped the province since last December is under control. The department's communicable diseases unit has been dispatched to the area to assess the cases. So far, more than 30 cases of the viral infection have been reported. Mark van der Hever is the spokesperson for the Western Cape Health Department. Look, we have 37 confirmed cases of um, meningitis that is um, contained within the muscle bay area. It's not the bacterial form of meningitis, so it's not the one that's fatal. This one is treatable. And in South Africa, seasonal peaks occur, especially in warmer months. That's when we start to see more and more cases of this type of meningitis. Now, have you been able to establish uh, the exact source you know, for this outbreak? And have there been any cases reported beyond muscle bay? No cases beyond Muscle Bay. Our outbreak team did go and do the necessary investigations. They also traced the origin of the, the meningitis to a crash located in the area. So that crash has been contained, it has been um, examined, investigated, and uh, our teams are busy analyzing the data that they retrieved. Now, apart from, of course, um, uh, enclosing that particular crash, what other damage control tactics are you using to make sure that this uh, doesn't spread? So what we're doing is part of the outbreak team their role is to, to also do contact tracing. They screen the people that those cases got into contact with. They screen them, they examine them. Should they find that there are signs or symptoms of meningitis, they will then also be admitted and treated. And um, yeah, they will then be discharged once they have been treated. Part of it also is we each and every opportunity that they get and they do preach um, prevention, um, which is basically just hand hygiene and washing your hands regularly with water and soap. Now, Mark, I know earlier you said it's a mild case of meningitis, but um, when people hear about these things, you know, everyone gets into a bit of a frenzy. Is there cause for concern and how can people avoid um, uh, getting infected, of course, in addition to what you've just mentioned about washing uh, your hands and so on? Look, there's no need for concern because this is is not the, the dangerous meningitis. This is treatable. It is is easily detected. So um, if patients or people feel that they have one of the symptoms, which could either be a fever, headache, a stiff neck, a tiredness, a rash on the body or soft throat, they should rather go to the, the clinic, see a doctor, and this will also allow us to, to early detect the virus and then also treat it appropriately. In addition to what I've already mentioned, what people could also do to prevent it is they should teach each other and, and ensure that they show the children how to properly wash their hands and they should emphasize the regular hand washing when children are at school or in contact with any other children. And then also just before you you work with food and after you've gone to the toilet, wash your hands regularly. There is Mark van der Heefer, spokesperson for the Western Cape Health Department in South Africa, speaking to Zikona Miso. 
Associations of older persons in Central African states met over the weekend in Nyawunde in Cameroon to discuss improvement of their living conditions against the backdrop of complaints. They are increasingly being abandoned in spite of their fragile economic conditions and health. They say the situation is serious as the United Nations estimates the number of people aged 60 and above will be 1.2 billion by 2025 due to increasing health care. Mogikinzeka reports from Miawunde. 72-year-old former nurse Nga Giselle has been at the Yaoundé Center for Old and Abandoned Persons, known in French as Centre Bethanie Viacam, for four years. She says she was brought here when she started suffering from chronic heart infections by a good Samaritan after she was abandoned by her family and two kids who are traditionally supposed to take care of her. La famille, c'est là où Dieu te met, c'est là la famille. Euh, en venant ici, c'est un papa Jésus. She says when she recovered from unconsciousness, she was told a Jesuit priest called Roger brought her to the center. She says she believes she is still living thanks to God's love and a family-like love she was treated to at the center. The center is home to 45 elderly persons of both sexes. 84-year-old former teacher Jean Etundi says her daughter brought her to the center because her busy career made it impossible to take care of him. He says her daughter got a job in Cameroon's economic capital, Douala, and could no longer live with him. He says her daughter now sends money for him to treat his paralysis. Ndula Pascaline, an official of the center, says it was a social taboo in Cameroon for people to take their old parents to elderly persons' homes. But because of no incomes, poverty, or disinterestedness, many people are now disregarding the old tradition. She says elderly persons become a burden to the family and that since most youths are in search of jobs in the cities, they have no option than to abandon their old parents in villages or in homes for elderly persons. She says another group of elderly people who are abandoned are those who are accused of witchcraft practices. A United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs report on aging published in June 2014 ahead of World Elderly Abuse Awareness Day, states that witchcraft accusations are used to justify extreme violence and abandonment of older women in 41 African and Asian countries, including Cameroon, Burkina Faso, Kenya, Malawi, and Tanzania. A 2013 study by the Central African Economic Commission and the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights states that social insurance schemes cover just 10% of Cameroon's population. Richard Nditanto, director of the non-governmental organization Ecumenical Service for Peace, who piloted the study, says it is imperative for the government to take care of the needs of such people. 
Well, we are going to engage stakeholders with this study so that they see exactly what is happening uh, with the elderly around Africa so that at least we should begin to reflect on how we can set up a, a system which would be able to rehabilitate elderly persons. There are people who spend their lives working to build a country and I don't think it is good for the country to abandon them when they are at old age. The elderly feel generally vulnerable and health and nutrition constitute their main concern. Some say they never had sufficient means to prepare retirement, especially after Cameroon's currency suffered a 50% devaluation in 1994 and state workers had a 60% salary reduction shortly after the devaluation. Social worker Biberos Lin says such difficult conditions made it difficult for many people to prepare for their retirement days. When they leave work and they go back to the village, they don't have what to take care of themselves, especially those who did not prepare towards their old age. So we're trying to see how we make a society that is inclusive, that will make everybody feel comfortable. The United Nations Population Division estimates that by 2050, the number of persons aged 60 will increase to 2 billion because of increased health care. 80% of them will be living in developing countries. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. World Wetlands Day is celebrated every year on February the 2nd to mark the day in which the Convention of Wetlands was adopted in 1971 in the Iranian city of Ramsar on the shores of the Caspian Sea. Tayaj Munkur, Programs Manager at Flyways at Wetlands International, says since 1997, the Ramsar Secretariats provide outreach material to help those public awareness, to help raise public awareness rather, about the importance and value of wetlands. It was from the information that's available through the Ramsar Convention and the other information sources. It seems like a lot of our wetlands are in a very dire situation with a lot of these wetlands being damaged or lost and changing all the time. And in each of the regions, there are many challenges in looking after the wetlands as wetlands are not recognized as being an important part of the environment that should be protected and managed and the connection between wetlands and our own livelihoods as humans are not easily understood. Basically without wetlands, no wetlands, there's no water. Without water there is no livelihoods. So this connection is not always seen by everybody. Therefore there needs to be a much greater awareness raising emphasis on getting people to understand the critical link between wetlands, water and livelihoods. This level of understanding of the role of the wetlands, is it the same as it is in Asia, Africa, Latin America and Europe? Well, the level of awareness is very different in different countries, let alone different regions. And it even within a country, there can be a very different level of understanding or awareness between people living in the cities or in the countryside or around a wetland. And most often, people who live closely linked to a wetland, either along a river or along a lake, and they fish there or they are 
growing their crops along the shores of the wetland, they understand much better the importance of those wetlands because their livelihoods depend on it. And in fact, this year, the main theme of the World Wetlands Day is sustainable livelihoods and how to better ensure that wetlands can be protected and managed in order to be able to sustain the livelihoods of the people who live and depend on the wetlands, but also the people who live far away from the wetlands, but also depend on the wetlands. For example, even if you live 100 or 500 or 1,000 kilometers away, your drinking water may come from a wetland, or your power supply through hydropower plant may come from a wetland. So wherever people live on the earth, they are directly, immediately connected to the wetland or in a more indirect way because of distance. And they don't often appreciate that. So people living in cities or in large towns with no connection to a river or a lake are not necessarily aware of their link to that water source. Talking about the theme of this year's uh, wetlands day, as you mentioned, that is sustainable livelihoods. But you find that this could be misinterpreted as it is that some of the areas where these ecosystems are, they've been turned into commercial entities and trade entities because you find that the impact becomes uh, more negatively sustained as a livelihood using the wetlands as a economy of nature instead of nature's economy well i think if i understand your question correctly are you trying to understand how wetlands play a role in local economies yes that's what i'm saying i mean you find that we have wetlands all over the world but now these wetlands are being turned into commercial areas whereby you find the livelihood that the ordinary people are supposed to benefit from, they're not benefiting. It's only those particular few individuals who have got the means of having access to the exploitation of these wetlands who are benefiting. Well, I think within the responsibility of countries at the national level or at the local level even, the government has the responsibility to ensure that natural areas of our environment are managed in a way that everybody benefits from the natural resources, not only today but into the future. And that's where the sustainability needs to come in. What are the main dangers faced by these ecosystems? Well, there are a wide variety of wetlands from glaciers in the mountains to coral reefs in the coastline. So depending on the kinds of wetlands, there are different threats posed both naturally and by man to these wetlands. Sayed Munkur is the programs manager at Flyways at Wetlands International on the line from Geneva talking to Wandile Kalip. Time for economic news. Here's Wissane Matabula.
South African mining company Kumba Iron Ore has announced the expected loss of close to 4,000 jobs in a massive restructuring of its Sisane mine in Kimberley in the Northern Cape province. Kumba Iron Ore spokesperson Nikki Wetzler says the restructuring will affect thousands of its staff and contract employees. The restructuring of the mine will impact approximately 2,653 Kumba employees. Contractors at the mine have commenced with their restructuring process and approximately 1,300 contractors will be affected. This has been an extremely difficult decision, but after exhausting all other avenues and doing all we could have done to reduce costs, we have no choice but to take more significant steps to preserve the viability of the mine. Meanwhile, South African Labour Union, the National Union of Mine Workers spokesperson Lucas Piri, says the union will do its best for the retrenched workers. It's confirmed that uh, Kumba served us with a notice with the intention to retrench a quite number of employees at the mine, and then they've referred the matter to CCMA for facilitation. Our stand as the National Union of Mine Workers is to try at our, our level best uh, to engage with the company to actually mitigate the number of people to be retrenched. Angola's finance ministry is negotiating a new deal uh, with the World Bank to loan it up to 200 million U.S. dollars. This is Africa's second biggest oil exporter struggles with low crude prices, a weakening currency and rising debt. Angola will implement reforms recommended by the World Bank during its mission. The World Bank representatives in Angola have declined to comment on any potential financial assistance. And South Africa's telecoms firm, Telcom, says its mobile unit will not reach break-even point in March as it had focused due to rising interest rates and cost pressures. Telcom, in which the South African government owns a stake of about 40%, has launched the business six years ago. It was meant to offset declining sales from its traditional phone business. However, the unit has failed to mount a serious challenge in a market dominated by MTN Group and Vodacom. And Rwanda will sell a five-year treasury bond worth 20 million US dollars this month. The central bank says the bond will have a market-determined fixed coupon and its proceeds will be used for infrastructure projects. Rwanda has been issuing bonds as part of a plan to develop its small capital market. The Kenyan Treasury says it's uh, targeting a budget deficit of 7% of the GDP in 2016-2017 fiscal year from a revised 8.1% this fiscal year. The East African nation has ramped up their spending in recent years to build a modern railway, new roads and electricity plants, driving up the budget deficit and unnerving investors. The deficit for this fiscal year is expected to decline to 5.1 billion US dollars. And the narrower deficit will be arrived at through a reduction expenditure and borrowing. And then to neighboring Uganda, where the inflation has eased to 7.6% year on year in January from a revised 8.4% a month earlier. It has been helped by a slowdown in food inflation. The Uganda Bureau of Statistics says annual food inflation had slowed to 12.7% in January from 13.8% in December. And core inflation, which excludes food, fuel, electricity and metered water, has also decreased to 7% in January. And that's how it's looking.
Now sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. FIFA presidential candidate Tokyo Sikhali will meet senior South African Football Association SAFA officials on Tuesday for an update. Amid reports that the millionaire businessman's home federation is frustrated over his lackluster campaign. SAFA denied, however, that it will ask Sikhali to withdraw from the FIFA elections at that meeting. SAFA spokesperson Dominic Chimhavi, although he was cagey when asked about the meeting, says Tuesday's meeting with SAFA's emergency committee is to ask Tokyo to give an update. No, 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 but I'm not going to talk on the, on the, on the issue of the Tokyo. You, so let me give you the phone number of the media person. On our side, we don't, what I'm trying to say is that the meeting is tomorrow. So we have nothing more to add, you understand? The meeting is taking place tomorrow. Domestic ball has returned to Sierra Leone after an 18 months absence due to the Ebola crisis, but in controversial circumstances. The league that began playing at the weekend has been formed by 11 out of 14 of the country's top flight clubs, but without the blessings of the Sierra Leone Football Association, the SLFA. The SLFA has called the league illegal and warned it would take action against clubs officials, players and coaches participating in the competition. The opening fixture which saw East End Lions beat FC Cologne 1-0 at the National Stadium in Freetown on Saturday was watched by the sports minister Paul Kamaram. In cricket news, it's back to the drawing board for South Africa's under-19 cricket team after suffering a shock defeat at the hands of Namibia in its second match in the under-19 World Cup in Bangladesh. After losing the opening match to the host, the South Africans won the toss and opted to bet, but only managed a paltry 136 in the 50 overs. The loss has taken the team out of contention for the playoffs. National coach Lawrence Mahatla says they are very much disappointed at their performances. What is important for us is uh, to just make sure that our lessons keep, keep growing. Uh, you learn more from losses, I feel, than from victories. And uh, it's important that those lessons learned are, are implemented. I think as a team, as a squad, we're hurting. We're very disappointed at our performance. In rugby news, following his team's agonizing defeat to New Zealand in the cup final of the Wellington Sevens, Bled's box coach Neil Powell plans to sit down with World Rug- Rugby's referees to clear up some issues. South Africa suffered 24-21 cup final loss after the host scored a try after the hooter had sounded. South Africa led 21-7 deep into the second half, but a yellow card for Roscoe Speckman caused the Blitzbok dearly as the Kiwis used their one-man advantage to get back into the contest. The Blitzboks were heavily punished at the breakdown area by referee Matt O'Brien, a New Zealander now based in Australia. The referee had also called back South Africa, saying that Seabelo Sinatra had lost the ball forward in a tackle, but it popped into the hands of Sheslin Colby, with the South African flyer having a clear run to the line. And with Springbok women's sevens coach Renfred Dazzle believes his team has a solid foundation to build from the seasons following their training matches against the Brazil national team in Stellenbosch in Cape Town. The team kicked off their season with a series of training matches against Brazil on Wednesday, Friday and Saturday respectively. And while no official scores were kept, Dazzle says the matches served as a good yardstick to measure the quality of the performances. 
Dazzle says the main objectives for them, for them in these matches has been to monitor the implementation of the structures and to measure where they are in terms of the quality of play and what they need to improve on for the season ahead. And finally, South Africa have added paceman Merchant Delang to their squad for five one-day internationals against England. Cricket South Africa says coach Russell Domingo need to manage the workloads of Monet Mokel and Kaji Sorabado who have played a lot, hence the inclusion of Merchant Delange because there is no Stain, no Philander and no Kyle Abbott. Dale Stain missed most of the test series which England won 2-1 with a shoulder injury while Vedon Philander has not played since the early stages of the tour to India in November where he tore ankle ligaments. A hamstring strain meant Kylie Abbott was unable to bowl during the final test against England in Pretoria. The first ODI is in Bloemfontein this Wednesday. That's your Sport News. This is Africa Digest. Let's look about top stories. African leaders urge to listen to their people more. Zika virus continues to cause a major headache for world authorities. In economics, Kumba Iron Ore announces loss of close to 4,000 jobs and a massive restructuring. In sports, FIFA presidential candidate, candidate expected to meet senior South African Football Association officials. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Mawamet, technical producer Aubangwe Mkuzangwe. And the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments, send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS, plus 27-796-957-930, plus 27-796-957-930. On Twitter, we are on Channel Africa 1, Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. We leave you with No Woman, No Cry by Bob Marley. (laughs) 